You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. With Aaron, we divide up our shows into two parts. God because damn it, you do. <laughs> it's kind of even. We, we have a way of going on for some time. And I knew once we got to over the halfway point of movies that we had in the stack that the last one was Avengers Endgame. We were going to talk about it for quite a while. Which we talked about that for – it's got to be like 10 to 20 minutes. Uh, it's like 20 minutes at okay. least. So I was like, all right, there's only four movies left to ta- talk about for the second half. Two of them are really huge movies, uh, neither one of which I was on the review for, one of which I wasn't. other people reviewed for the site I was not on, the other which we didn't review at all because they didn't scream for press, but was a huge release film. And then we have two films you've never heard of. And one I cried watching the ad for. <laughs> <laughs> but Aaron is here joining me again. Woo-woo. And we have, uh, well, let's. do you want to just get into it? Yeah, let's do this. All right. Well, we're going to start with the two that you haven't heard of. <laughs> They're like, yay. Um, <laughs> and the first is The Brink. This originally came out in 27 in Hong Kong. It's an action crime thriller film that literally is every 90s cop versus a criminal, both with moral like ambiguity film that you've ever seen, only with very updated martial yeah, arts fighting. Like the- I made it halfway through, and I was like, I think I'm watching The Corrupter. <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's like, oh, we've seen so many. And The Corrupter is an American film that was playing off those Which, same things. by the things. way, I kind of love but, the Little But it's like gym. the killer, hardwood, like a lot of the John Woo-influenced stuff or the Ringo Lamb stuff. Like, okay, this is that same type of thing, but beautifully shot. with some. Uh, I, I thought so. Uh, I, I think... Let's go into this, but I think that I'm going to like this movie considerably less than you. All right, what's the story? Oh, I'm going to see if I can put this together. Uh, So uh, the main character is a rogue cop who, in the beginning, after pulling a raid and messing up a bunch of people, accidentally kills an undercover cop, I think. Um, After being put on an administrative leave, he comes back with a vengeance, wanting to hunt down our villain who is a smuggler who is, in the beginning of the movie, is uh, betrayed by his boss, and they try to kill him, but instead he stages a coup. And so the two running plot lines that we have through the movie is the cop going to the ends of the earth and doing morally questionable things and dragging his I'm-about-to-retire partner along for the ride, while the villain is struggling for control of his underworld organization and also trying to get a deal with the even bigger monolithic uh, criminal organization that will set him and his cronies up for good. Yes. So that that is the plot in a nutshell. Uh, fun fact, the main character in this, the rogue cop, is the main character from a far better uh, It Man Z legacy movie. Uh, I made it halfway through the movie and I paused it. Uh, and Zang Jin? The villain is significantly more famous and bigger oh, yeah. than him. Sean Yu, who was in uh, Internal Affairs 2, amongst yeah. many other things. And my things. au pair was shocked that he was not on the box. Yeah, he, he was a pretty big star for a very long time. And it was like, oh. And then even the uh, the guy who, uh, who plays Blackie, who I guess is one of the villains there, yep. uh, is played by uh, Yasu, uh, Yasuaki oh. Kawada, who was the bad guy in Fist of Legend, oh. again, who has that, one of the best martial arts fights in martial arts film history. And, and I forgot. At the end I of forgot. That uh, also, partway through the movie... Uh, while the rogue cop is going through and doing his rogue cop things, um, because he rogue cops too hard, he gets his partner captured. And there is a running threat story of, A, 
is my partner actually corrupt? Has he turned to the dark side and is helping the bad guys? Or is he a hostage? We don't know where he is. Let's find him. Right. Um, and the plot elements are all stuff you, if you watch a lot of these, you've seen them many times. We, we've seen a dozen of these in the 90s. And, and you say you were like mixed on the, uh, the look, but I thought, look, there's, and it's only like maybe three scenes in the movie where you're like, Damn, that's amazingly well done. The opening sequence, which looks like they're fighting in the fucking school in Suspiria, like where all the red and green lighting in this crazy place and brutal fights throughout that. I was like, wow, that's so cool. But the other big one is towards the end, which is a fight between sort of the hero, the villain, and the guy who you're not sure if he's a hero or villain on a ship at sea in the middle of a storm. And I thought that was amazing. I'll admit, I I did enjoy that. I'm not going to say it's amazing. So here's my problem, and I've mentioned this a couple of times when talking about uh, Hong Kong and Chinese cinema, is that there's a trend right now where the Chinese film market is huge. It it is rivaling the American film market, and as they have gotten bigger, they have started to look to America uh, with certain narrative twists and visual styles with the way they shoot and produce films, because they know that those make money. Um, And this felt like a and how do you say it this felt like a so-so american director got a cast of amazing action stars and made a movie but he didn't really know how to shoot them and so like the camera's a little too handheld while no it's not as bad as watching like Mile 22. Yeah. Uh, it still gets too close. They edit too much. I kept wanting them to pull back. And, and maybe if I hadn't recognized, like, in the opening shot who that cop was. Yeah. And, like, okay, I've, I saw It Man Legacy two weeks ago. This guy can do an entire fight sequence in one take. He's I've amazing. seen it. Yeah. And you're not utilizing him the way you should. I mean, and so, like, I kept having that issue. I hear what you're saying, but I didn't think it was egregious in the way that, like, those American films are, where you're like, I can't even, like, I feel like anybody could be doing this. The film knows to focus long enough to see some of the amazing shit yeah. he's doing, and it's definitely him and not just the product of, like, trying to work around the fact Matt Damon doesn't know martial arts. You are right. You know? But, like, you can still tell they know. It's just that it never showcases it to me. Hmm. And I also had an issue with the fact that none of the characters really are characters. Like, yes, there is a plot. But if you can tell me one single component of the personality that the rogue cop has, anything about his person, except that he is a rogue cop trying to catch this guy. Like there's a small side plot that takes up about five minutes of screen time with him trying to care for the daughter of, um, the guy he murdered in the beginning of an accident, which ends up being a, anti-abortion pro kind of thing? Iffy? Not enough for me to go, that's what it is. It's not hitting you over the head. Yeah, it's it's enough that when it happened, I was like, really, that's that's what you're saying now is this? He's kind of like, oh no, you're going to have the baby. Yeah, (laughs) but so like, none of the characters have anything to them, so I, I... I, it just had a, had a case of been there, done that. The movie was okay. And it was funny. My au pair watched part of the movie with me, and then she went to bed and was asking me what I thought about it. And I was telling her, like, yeah, I was mixed on it. It was okay. And she was like, yeah, it wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because a lot of the action sites out there loved this. And I get it, I guess. I mean, like I said, like, Zhang Jin and Shan Yu are great martial artists. They're both really good actors. They're not... I think, if anything, it's like an over-familiarity with these films goes to going, you could have done more with what you had. True. If I was... If I hadn't seen movies that were ten times better than this in the recent last few weeks, even, I probably would have been a lot kinder on this. I will say there is a brilliant piece of... uh, uh, prop mastering. The main villain has a weapon that is a little handheld, like pencil spear gun. Yeah, that is just cool. It's cool. It is badass. Never seen that before. And he uses it to great effect several times in the movie. There's also kind of a cool uh, whole, which the cover is selling you on uh, in in this movie, The Brink, the underwater 
like like getting the gold from underwater thing, which feels like a leftover from a Peter Benchley novel you never heard of. I, I didn't the, like that scene. It's like I love it in concept, and there's moments that are cool, but ultimately it felt like the director wasn't good enough to sell you on making them well, feel like truly tense. Where were the great white sharks? There should and, have been great white sharks. And that whole sequence takes place 50 feet away from the the big monolithic crime boss's yacht. Yeah. Ten seconds after the villain just held a knife to his throat. Yeah. And I'm like, why are people not responding and doing something about this? Although there is a great sequence in the middle where a generic female sidekick villain um, starts attacking the cops with uh, dry ice bombs. And it's actually a really cool bit. Like, that's her gimmick, is dry ice bombs. And the movie uses them to great effect throughout. And this is one of those films I'm glad I saw. I genuinely am. And I think that, like, this director shows definite hope in the future of being better. And yeah. maybe I'm just like, someone's going to say, look at all these other movies he did. I don't know. On Wikipedia, it just it has them in traditional Chinese names. Like, so I'd, like, I'd rather watch The Corruptor. This was okay. No, you uh, wouldn't. I, no I, one I, would rather watch The Corruptor <laughs> than like, anything. I, I'm intrigued to see what he does down the line. I'd like to maybe see him do a movie that has a little more gunplay, because I think yeah. his directing style would work well with that. There's moments of but, really gorgeous style here, but it keeps getting interrupted by very generic stuff. Yeah. And you're like, why not do the whole movie? like that or get a better script yeah it, this feels like a like a leftover johnny toe script oh. with somebody trying to make something better don't besmirch the from. name of johnny toe <laughs> well i will say that uh there's a special appearance by gordon lamb who's worked uh, here who's worked with johnny toe in a bunch of his big films so just saying there are a few four little epks making of stuff here um behind the scenes cop versus gangster the characters underwater scene and special <laughs> there's a special feature of the characters yes <laughs> uh, such as it is and then there's three trailers uh, or four trailers but you know not a lot but more than you'd expect uh our next one is very misleading it's called the devil's playground i was like yeah let's see this horror movie Which- called the devil's playground and uh not a horror film i i had a very different response. When I saw the title was The Devil's Playground, my immediate thought was, oh, I bet this is about sex in a church. Because I went back to that that fake trailer that Tobey Maguire did, Satan's Alley. Yeah. Like, that was my mental image of this movie. And I was was more accurate than you. (laughs) You were. Um, And I, I can't remember who it was who put this out, but I remember the company normally puts out just horror. It was film movement. Was it film movement? I think it was film oh, movement. So maybe, maybe I'm thinking wrong then. But I remember whatever, for whatever reason, I was like, oh, this is definitely horror. De- definitely was not horror. Uh, this is a 1976 film that uh, in, it released in theaters that now is coming out in VOD and DVD. It won the Australian Film Institute's Best Film, Best Director, Best Actors, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Editing, which you're like, where the hell was Nicholas really Rogue quick. this year? It was not film movement. <laughs> okay, fair. Who was it? I couldn't read it, but it wasn't film movement. It's dark in here. Um, uh, but they're like, okay, well, let's re-release this here. Uh, the Devil's Playground indeed refers to the religious thought of, like, your crotch is the Devil's Playground, you know? Which they actually say that at one point in the movie. Uh, they do. But what is the plot of this movie, Aaron? Oh, God. Okay. I'm going to keep putting it on you this episode. Yeah, I'm... I'm okay with the rest of them. It's this one. Um, all right. So the movie follows a single character or one kid. 1953. 1953. And a bunch of his friends, which I'll admit I was not sure if his name was Tom or Alan because they kept calling him by different things. <laughs> Tom. Okay, Tom. So basically he is at a seminary uh, with a bunch of other kids. <laughs> uh, studying, said seminary. Uh, <laughs> studying to eventually grow up and join the church as priests. Um, and right off the bat, uh, he's in a bad way. He has a bedwetting problem, which is being treated with, let's say, not grace or tact. By yeah. anyone, he's getting made fun of from everyone, and is having a crisis of faith. Um, the movie mainly follows him and a few of his friends. One of his friends is 
in an effort to push himself to achieve a higher state of holiness, is trying to come up with new and strenuous punishments for his body while he meditates, like strapping a boiling a uh, water bottle full of boiling water to his leg for fifteen <laughs> minutes while he prays. Um, yeah, very uh, self-flagellating, yeah. if you will. Uh, and basically all the kids are going through that transition from preteen to teen and the sexual awakening that comes with it. At the same time, the, the actual headmasters and teachers of this school are themselves, uh, both extremely strict and pushing, uh, the, you know, your body is a, or sorry, not your body. Uh, your penis is the devil's playground. Uh, any sexual urges are the devil working through you. You need to repress any emotion you have whatsoever. Basically, every unhealthy thing that the Catholic Church did, and we all know about now. And I feel like there's a lot of, like, first off, all of this is just too on the nose today. We're like, yes, we know. Yeah. We've all been through this. But this came out in 1974. Exactly. Like, like, I, so, it, looking at when this movie came out, I can see this movie being a bombshell. Because uh, it, it's not salacious. It's very slice of life. And that is one of the things that took me the longest to get into. Is because I expected it to be a lot more salacious. And it's not. It's almost a documentary, it feels like. Where it's just like, stuff is just kind of happening. And we're watching this unfold. And we we see sequences of the kids having conversations. And we get that they're going through changes. We see the various priests, teachers... Um, faced with their own burgeoning sexual desires as yeah, it comes out in different ways. There's the one priest who's bringing a younger priest with them into town yeah. and is going to bars like, let's almost have sex with locals. Yep. <laughs> uh, um, and there's another guy who is kind of the harshest and most stringent of them who, like, basically almost turns into a peeping Tom at a pool because just he sees the hint of like a, a naked butt. Yeah. And, and the, it just yeah. like is, Oh my God, I don't know how there's, to deal with there's this. There's the priest dealing with his own homosexuality and pedophilia. Uh, although not going to that point, yeah, but just, his, just those like, his own fear of the things he's feeling. There's the kid. There's one kid who's like clearly wants to just jerk off other kids uh, and dealing with his own homosexuality. Like, no, but yeah. this is okay because we're two dudes. Yeah. Uh, there's the the main kid has got kind of a thing for like another girl and like a local like thing. Well, but that like and that never really comes to anything because well, that that also happens in the end. Like, yeah. And, and this is the problem with the movie is that in our modern times where we've dealt with multiple rounds of Catholic church scandals, there is nobody out there who isn't aware that behavior like this is massively detrimental to the human uh, mind and body, that this is fucked up and abusive and horrible, and that this went on. And so because of that, there's a been there, done that uh, quality to it. So like... Like, when the kid meets the girl, and she kind of acts as the catalyst for him finally realizing, or for him starting to consider that the church isn't for him. And, like, that's why I was okay with the way their relationship played out in the movie, because it's not really about his relationship with her. It's about seeing that there are other ways of life. But, again, I was was kind of bored. It's ostensibly... A buildings Roman, a coming of age story, but the problem is that Tom, as much as he's the main character, the film doesn't really care about Tom. The film wants to cram in and as much. Here are the problems with the scenario of a all boys Catholic run school uh, into this film with a bunch of characters that don't get enough screen time to really explore what's going on, which is and just feels like a laundry list of like obvious problems that are going to happen in this situation without ever really coming to any sort of statement or conclusion. Which is why I say it feels like a documentary almost. Yeah. Because, like, there's a scene after one... The climax... Not the climax, but kind of the linchpin moment is uh, a child dies because of of some of the things that have been going on. And there's this conversation between all of the headmasters. That's the word. Circling it. Um... Where they are all going, 
guys, we have to realize that we're the reason why this is happening. Yeah. We need to back away from these harsh teachings. I don't care what the diocese says. This is bad. And, like, that feels like what the point of the movie is. But, again, now it it lands flat. Maybe when this came out, when the Catholic Church was a lot more mysterious, and yeah. if you weren't going through this yourself, you didn't know about yeah, this. more groundbreaking at Maybe, the time. like, this would have blown your mind open. But we've had so many more yeah, in-depth, thoughtful, like, well-done explorations. I, I don't want to say this is a bad movie, because I, I, it was... I, but it's bad. I want to say it's good. It's just that it's a movie that doesn't work when removed from its time. It's dull by today's context. Yeah. Uh, there are some bonus materials here. <coughs> audio commentary with director Fred Shepsey. There's a feature with him and the key casting crew, and there's an interview with the director. Uh, there is explicit nudity, sex, language, and bullying, sexual innuendo in here. So this is not a film to teach your uh, younger child about the problems with the Catholic Church, although you probably should teach them that at some point. My yeah. personal opinion, like obviously not everyone may agree with me, but I think that the like... Uh, watch the post. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't watch the post. Why would you do that? Because that's better. No, no. Are you thinking of... Uh, not th- the post. I think I am thinking of the wrong one. You're thinking of the wrong one. I forget the name of the other one. It had the, the Hulk in it. Yes. Yeah. yeah, the one with the Hulk in it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm blanking on the name of it. Wait, was the post not good? I thought it was supposed to be good. I did not care for it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have Gojira, King of the Monsters. Woo! I say Gojira because that is actually what his name is. All right. So this Godzilla. is the movie that uh, made me cry when I watched the trailer. Oh, you. Ugh. You and your kaiju thing. Dude, okay, It's not so, enough we have Matt Frank on the side already. I got to deal with your fanaticism. So my <laughs> earliest film memory is watching Godzilla vs. Hedorah, which was Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster. And I, I, there was this moment when I was watching the trailer for this movie that it kind of hit me that that I'm getting to watch these these characters, these icons that are so seminal and yeah, yeah, I said seminal again. Well, it's not <laughs> funny when you're talking about Godzilla. <laughs> but uh, are so seminal in almost everything I'm into. Like, like You can track so much of my interest back to the fact that I watched a bunch of Godzilla movies when I was a kid <laughs> that it blows me away that we're getting to see well-produced, well-budgeted, mostly well-made American Godzilla films that treat the character with respect for the most part. Like I I thoroughly enjoyed the 2014 Godzilla film. I I know that it has problems and I acknowledge many of them, you know, the raw main character, we should see more Godzilla doors and the ambulance closing just as the monsters are starting. to fight. What was that? It has issues, but like it's, I still think nobody has ever nailed the existential kind of the Lovecraftian dread that these giant monsters have as well as Gareth Edwards did. Okay. But, but this is a different movie. Yeah. This is Godzilla King of the Monsters. Secret. Which technically the third film in the series. They they went, okay guys, fine. You want big monsters fighting? Done. That's the whole movie. Monsters (laughs) fighting in the world. And uh, so the plot. All right, let's jump into that. What and, is the plot? And fair warning, I'm going to spoil a character turn that happens about 20 minutes into the movie because a lot of feelings I have about this movie are tied with that. Okay. And I can't talk about this movie without acknowledging I can't it. wait to hear your synopsis. <laughs> so so basically the movie opens right away, like jumps in, Vera Formiga and uh, Eleven, which is one of the color throughout the whole thing. <laughs> Millie Bobby Millie Brown. Millie Bobby Brown uh, are at a Monarch Kaiju research lab. Monarch is the government-run group that basically is in charge of the kaiju. Yes. They've been seated throughout Kaiju the being giant monsters. So, we don't know. Vera Formiga has come up with some magic device that lets you talk to the kaiju and hence at controlling them. We meet Mothra, who, by the way, is my son's favorite kaiju. Mothra is pretty amazing. Mothra's amazing. I can't wait for him to be old enough to this show This may him. be my favorite version of Mothra in terms of the way that it's conceived of and visualized, but not with the arc. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so while we're seeing how her device works, boom, Ro- Roger Dance, Kyle Dance, what's uh, his name? Uh, Charles Dance. Charles Dance. 
bursts in, shoots everyone in the head, yeah. except for Vera Formiga and, and Millie Bobby Brown, yeah. and says, you bitches are coming with me. I'm a bioterrorist. Yeah. So we jump to Kyle Chandler, who is the husband, who is grieving from his son, who died in the 2014 Godzilla movie, and he gets wrapped up because he worked on the device. Uh, and the two plots that are running through the movie is the eco-terrorist whose plan is to wake up all the kaiju one by one because it'll cull some of the Earth's population. Yeah, because reasons. <laughs> because after the kaiju come in and wreck things, it actually, lots of growth happens in the environment. Right. Which, I, I have to tell you, that I think is a really cool idea. Well, there's the, the thing that like there's so much radiation in their wake that it's a unique form of yeah. radiation that stimulates to an insane amount, like growth of like plants and trees and animals that they're like, the argument is from them. These are God's white blood cells or their white blood cells. They, when, when humans have, are virus with shoes, as Bill Hicks said, and they've infested the planet and fucked it up. When it gets too bad, the Titans come back and start wiping out humans. And then, start reseeding the earth with life to fix things, which to be fair, we could probably use at this point. So the, the two groups are the terrorists wake going to wake up the Kaiju and Kyle Chandler and the military, uh, basically just trying to stop them. And yeah. then very quickly we get to monster zero, which I have to call out that I love that they kept calling it monster zero <laughs> that made my geek happy. Uh, which is the first of a bunch of references to the show of movies. Cause this is, so very much the American answer to the Showa era of Godzilla films. So they wake up Monster Zero, which is King Ghidorah, Yay. the three-headed gold dragon, lightning-spewing badass motherfucker. We've been waiting for awesome. Yeah, And this is the character turn where, whoa, Vera Formiga is actually a bad guy, which... Is she's an idealistic bad guy. The she's the one who it's her plan. Yeah. She's the one who's actually doing this. And this is my first actual major problem with the movie is that turn is so limp wristed and weak. Yeah. That you almost don't realize that it happened. Yeah. And and almost every problem I have with this movie is tied to her character throughout. But Monster Zero wakes up. And after a really cool fight that has a couple of really lame character deaths uh, with Godzilla and King Ghidorah, King Ghidorah just wakes everybody I thought it was up. Ghidorah. Is it Ghidorah? It's different pronunciations. Okay, fair. Ghidorah, I just want to make sure I wasn't getting it wrong. Ghidorah, Ghidorah, Ghidorah all work yeah. because, yay, American movies in the 50s. Just don't call me late for dinner. So it ends up that Ghidra, or Ghidorah, is another alpha kaiju and basically goes, Titans wake up. And all across the world, all the kaiju start waking up and wrecking shit. And so the bioterrorists are going, what the hell? We were supposed to do this slowly. And the military is going, oh my god, what the hell? Now, I'm sure that, like... Matt Frank knew exactly who all the other Titans were supposed uh, to be. Actually, a few of them are originals. Okay. Are, were they? Because I was like, every Rodan is there. Who's Rodan awesome, is there. Every so. Lazardan. But then, other than Mothra, I was like, I don't know who all these other guys the, the are. Rest of them, the, the rest of them are either original or potential derivations of some of the more minor kaiju. Because like, I'm like scanning the screen for Biolanti. No, nah, nah, I would be so happy if Biolanti was there. Um, Anguirus shows up as a skeleton in one scene, kind of maybe. And the, one of them might be the giant spider. But we don't... Like, they mentioned 17, but we really see like five or six. Right. And it's really Rodan, Mothra, Ghidra, and Godzilla. Yeah. Um, but the movie progresses as Godzilla and Ghidra have a fight... Um, the American military intervenes and does more damage than good. Yeah. They fuck and up by their anti-oxygen weapon. Oh, question that mark. <laughs> that is that a thing from the movies? That's, that's how they reason? kill Godzilla in the very first movie. Oh, is it? I it is the oxygen that. destroyer. All right. So, uh, uh, but like, and then it it does something that is the thing that makes me the happiest, which is that twist of going revealing, oh, wait, these are their white blood cells. 
Godzilla is on our side. He's just the big lumbering, oops, sorry, oops, sorry, oops, yep. sorry. <laughs> like, you know, like, hey, some people are going to die to fix things. I don't know what to tell you. Um, and they have to bring him back with a nuclear missile. And I was like, okay, I, it's awkward and just no more or less awkward and stumbly than stuff in original Godzilla so, movies. But I love that they like to have this sort of go, go team Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> the movie kind of becomes this back and forth between Godzilla and Ghidra. And this time the military actually getting involved in the fight. And it all builds to a really great climax that happens in Baltimore or Boston. One of the two. Yeah. Um, one of the B's. Um, and I really don't want to go too much into detail beyond that. Did you realize, by the way, that Joe Morton, who of course is most famous for being in Terminator 2 for the, the scientist who they originally came to kill. Yeah. And then got on their team. He's in there. He's in the movie. He's the character Corey Hawkins played in Kong Skull Island. He's the same character. I did not get that actually. Dr. Houston Brooks. Yes. So here are my issues with the movie. One, the script is super lazy. It's lazy. Like, oh my God. Uh, if you've ever wanted to know what a movie without subtext is, this is the one. Everyone says exactly what they're feeling at every single scene. There is no mystery. Um, every turn is obvious. The the bit where they go to rest to bring back Godzilla is some of the laziest. Oh look, those lights flash. That must mean they have a connection here and here. Let's do that. All like, that it, is like, what a cool idea. You did nothing imaginative or cool with it. They needed two more passes of the script to make it a little more There should have been a way where you really had a sense of awe and, and wonder there, and it never delivers. And Vera Formiga's character is so poorly handled, it actually made me angry in the movie theaters. Yeah, no, I get you. Um, because For sure. She, like, she should be the villain. She should be the... Like, she doesn't deserve the redemption the movie very much wants her to have. It wants her to be this misunderstood hero. And when you, no matter what, you can't move past the fact that she is literally responsible for the death of millions. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why, and, why that doesn't work. And I thought about this a lot. It's because Millie Bobby Brown, who is her daughter, is given almost nothing to actually say or do in this film. Yeah. In fact, there's a whole deleted sequence that's included here on the, the DVD that I'm not really sure was enough, but at least it was something with more of them actually communicating. They needed to have a stronger bond. Agreed. They needed to have more communication. Eleven speaks about as much as she does in Stranger Things. I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. She is a, supposed to be this big turn point in the film. She is given almost no dialogue in this film. Oh, and, and, the and, and she should be there as the purpose of humanizing Vera Farmiga, but there's just nowhere near enough there. And, and the director has gone on record as saying that he doesn't view Formiga's character as a villain, yeah. which is the one of the biggest problems. Like, in, in the movie, like, flat out, unequivocally, basically goes, she's right. Like, it is on her side in this, which drove me up the wall at the end of the movie. Um, on top of that... Like, I, it was cool that humanity became involved in bringing Godzilla back, but, and Matt Frank went on about this, so I'm not going to go into too much detail, but this movie is uh, eerily pro-nuke for yeah. a franchise that is built in its very bedrock on the horrors of nuclear power. Yeah. For the nuke to be what brings... <laughs> It's just morally questionable. It's I get that they weren't thinking about that kind of thing, and, and it kind of works, and it gives us some beautiful moments, but it's it's wonky to do it in a Godzilla movie. And they, they kill off some major actors from the first movie in very unceremonious ways. Like, basically, what it all boils down to is anytime the monsters are on screen and the interplay they have... This movie nails it. It is phenomenal. They have some brilliant kaiju ideas that legitimately evolve the idea of how we view these characters. The monsters, and and they are characters. The monsters are cool, and they add a new type of 
like un- science understanding and this new thing of what their purpose is and how they relate to each other that was cool. Yeah. And they look amazing and the fights are amazing. And every time it goes back to the humans, you're like, why isn't this well, better? You know what it was? Is It's not they- like it's totally awful. It just is kind of undercooked. It's, it's lazy. It's, I mean, it's, it's a second draft. It and doesn't, they, they went back and they polished the monster shit up. Yeah. But they went, fuck it, we just need to get here. The humans the human are never part. fun. Like, they added, there's Bradley Whitford, who is a crypto sonographer. Is that really a thing? Uh, who works for Monarch, who is basically speaks in nothing but one liners. And then Thomas Middleditch, who's their director of technology. Both of them together have their sort of, like, funny moments here, but they're side characters. Neither one of them has any resonance or arc to them, so they're, like, who cares? All the other characters only scream and, like, totally, as you said, on the nose exactly what I'm actually thinking. Like, no subtlety, no sense of, like, being a real character at all. I mean, Kyle Chandler included. I was saying before we started, let me, you're going to get a character who's a scientist who's like, you shouldn't have done it. You get, like, why did you do this? Everything's going to go bad. You get Jeff Goldblum. Like, I'm sorry, at least then there would have been a sense of fun because he's replaying the Jurassic Park role. I didn't have, like, I like Kyle Chandler as an actor. I do, too. I think that he did as good a job as you could do. But, like, again, to have Goldblum come in, I still don't think he would have done a great job here. Because the script is just bad and lazy at at those parts. We didn't even talk about the weird fucking thing with Zhang Ziyi. Uh, from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, oh, well, of course, who plays a mythologist working for Monarch, and they really half-assedly tie her into the idea of the twins who summon Mothra. Yeah. And in this, like, wait, even the movie is embarrassed while it's doing Yeah. And the movie's like, oh, it's a thing. never mind, don't worry about it, just go on. Yeah, which... <laughs> I could, if you're gonna do that, just lean into it. Yeah. Either do it for real and have tiny little three inch ladies. I don't know if they have to don't do that. Do it part, at all. But they do like every person in her family is Zhang Zi, pretty yeah. much. They're all <laughs> identical twins, basically. Like, Everybody in, I, for generations. I was like, okay. I, I thoroughly so I, I ended up really having a good time with this movie. It is fun. As a as a Godzilla fan, I had a blast. I think that if you have a low bar for judging movies, you're not going to be as bothered by the human element as I was. But... I mean, this definitely plays better in a theater, though, than it does like, in Unharmed, because I, it's a big, explosive monster. Although, I enjoyed it more the second time, because I was ready for, like, I, I was angry coming out of the first time I saw it. This The second time, I was, I was a lot cooler in my head. But it has me slightly concerned about Calm Skull Island. I'm glad that we have Adam Wingard doing it. He's done really good movies in the past. You mean Kong vs. Godzilla? Kong vs. Godzilla, yes. What did I say? Kong Skull Island. Uh, yeah. We already got that one. Sorry. And I um, like that one. That's my favorite of the three, personally. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, but like, I, I really, really just hope they get a better script for the next movie. They need it. Well, if you want this, uh, the 4K looks amazing, by the way. It really is a nice presentation here. And apparently the audio, that I, I don't have a great... I have a normal setup just stereo system at home, unfortunately, right now. I formerly had a 7-1 in a previous house. I don't anymore. But uh, I hear it's phenomenal, which is what you want out of this kind of movie, that they really got all the... The technical presentation here is phenomenal. Uh, But there's a lot of extra features here. There's Monsters 101 for five and a half minutes, which takes a look at four of the main titans and just is sort of like a history of like, what are their powers? What do they do? Where are they from? There's Evolution of the Titans for about 27 and a half minutes, uh, which covers the visual effects used to cover those same four ti- uh, uh, characters with interviews with cast and crew members. Monarch in Action for 33 minutes, which is a five-part segment, which takes a look at the five major settings from the film. Millie Bobby Brown, Force of Nature for four minutes. I didn't realize she was British either. <laughs> um, Monster Tech, Monarch joins the fight for eight and a half minutes, which is uh, about the real military-grade technology sent, seen during the film. Monsters are real, 14 minutes, which is um, experts who try and say, oh, no, dude, 
This is based on real... Shut up. It's really kind of... This is one of those extra features, like, this is embarrassing and you should stop. <laughs> uh, um, welcome to the MonsterVerse. Uh, little uh, three and three quarters mi- minutes. A sort of like overview EPK look at Godzilla and Kong Skull Island. Deleted and extended scenes. There's five minutes. Nothing here is essential, but and they're rightly cut, but they're worth seeing. They're full-on real extended uh, uh, deleted scenes. There's uh, 12 minutes of uh, theatrical trailers for other movies. And then an audio commentary with director Michael Doherty, producer Zach Shields, and strangely actor O'Shea Jackson who plays a very small role in here. And I love O'Shea Jackson. I think he's great but I'm not sure why he's the go-to guy for the commentary the military track. guys? Yeah, he's, he's like... I think he's the one who gets the best fuck I've seen or heard in the movie in a long time. That's fair. <laughs> well, our final film for this show and our pick of the week because we discussed it ahead of time, is... <laughs> Don't speak for me. I mean, it is, but... <laughs> is Rocket Man. We did not get to review this when it came out because there was no press screening for well, this. And, uh, so, man, we as a people failed this movie. Yeah. My only my only word that I got of this movie going in was one person inexplicably complaining that there's no psalms of his in the movie, which I don't no, no, get that. No, what? Somebody, no original versions of Elton John? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and then everybody who I heard talk about it, which was like two or three people, and admittedly no one on this site, um, hated it with a passion. Really? I came into this movie with I was dreading it. <laughs> wow, because I had heard <coughs> nothing but rave reviews about this. That's because it's one of the best movies of this year. It Fair. might even be the best movie this year. It's not, but okay. <laughs> I still really loved it. But Rocket Man is uh, the uh, musical biopic of Elton John, which we all knew has been coming for a very, very long time. Yes. Elton John himself, who, unlike a lot of biopics, is still alive, was like, Oh, I am going to be over every inch of this bitch, and we are going to do this correctly. He even wrote a little five-page uh, promotion letter. for his upcoming biography. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was that what that was? Pretty much. Oh, I just thought it was. I just read it as talking. It's about like this movie. it's a promotion for his biography. The end is like, oh yeah, and I was there for the whole thing with the movie, and and I, I approve of this message. I didn't even know he was talking about his. I, I thought when he was talking about his autobiography. I thought he was talking about this movie as his autobiography. <laughs> uh, uh, well, never mind. That's a lot less cool now. Taking uh, John, Taron Egerton playing Elton John, Jamie Bell as his longtime collaborator <coughs> and writer of all his lyrics, Bernie Taupin, Richard Madden as John Reed, who was his manager, Bryce Dallas Howard as Shila, uh, Sheila Eileen, his mother. Uh, it starts from his early days at the Royal Academy of Music through first meeting and teaming up with Toppin to him becoming the superstar suffering through, you know what it goes through. It's in terms of every biopic you've ever seen about a musician in terms of dryly putting out what the story is. But the problem is if that's all you're going to look at, then I don't know what to tell you because this film is about a lot more than that. As Elton John says repeatedly in the multiple bonus features here, sometimes the fantasy of things is more true than the flat out just what actually happened. And I wanted this film to sort of have a sort of magical realism that more accurately represented emotionally what was happening. And they created a film that because of that, because of them going into big musical numbers, like a Broadway stage musical version of this, is much more engaging and heartfelt than any of the any biopic, musical biopics in recent memory. Yeah, uh, yeah. Fun fact: this is a musical. It's a rock opera. Did not know that going in. Uh, the first time a musical number popped up, it really took me for a little bit of a ride. It's like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, the, but it, it, it goes left field with like, wait, what's happening? Is this <laughs> is this a music video they made? What's going on? <laughs> but like. The music numbers are legitimately beautiful. There was uh, the first time he plays at the Troubadour, mm-hmm. and there's oh. this moment where he hits this high note, and he kicks his legs out, and the movie freezes and slows down, but he he's aware of it, 
And so he's just floating there, singing, and then all the people in the audience, as they go start with him, floating, they yeah. all start floating up. That gave me I, the chills. I started crying. Gave me the chills. That, and there's a scene when he and Bernie first truly like hit that magic of collaboration, and he's playing, I can't remember the name of the song, because I really had very little exposure to Elton John before this. Mm. But um, he's playing one of his best songs, and it is such a beautiful moment. There is a great sense of, like, there is no reason to tell this musically in a way where the songs have to line up congruently with the time that they came (coughs) Why? Who gives a shit? It's not that kind of film. The songs appear in the film in the context of what they're about and how they relate to what was going on in his life. The, the, The framework of the movie is it opens with him walking into rehab with a gaudy orange devil outfit with horns and wings and stuff. gaudy. I say my no. Sunday wear. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I would pay. I, I, I will give you a hundred dollars if you show up wearing that anywhere. Just, if you buy it for me, I will. <laughs> but, um, and he drops into rehab and is like, I'm a drug addict, alcoholic, sex addict, shopaholic, uh, asshole who does this, and he throws in three other addictions as well, and like it, it frames the whole movie as him kind of going through his life story in the all right, it's your turn to share. So it, it gives great license for them to go buck wild with the visuals. Mm-hmm. And, and what's really phenomenal is the guy who directed this is uh, I primarily know him as an actor, Dexter Fletcher. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's I been actually, directing for a while, but but like he's yeah, we yeah, all know. Him I didn't realize it, and I didn't realize that he directed the uh, considerably overrated, Eddie in my opinion, um, Eddie the Eagle Queen biopic. I. Oh, yeah, he's the one who replaced yeah, Brian he, Singer, he, he, but towards the end. Which, which admittedly, I feel like like that movie is a mess, he, he was the, and it's a mess because of what was happening. He was the years. fixer who came in yeah. and, and, and tried to fix stuff after Brian Singer left, with like after they were well over halfway through yeah. the film. So I feel so. like he kind of, I, the, the narrative I have in my head is he went through that experience and was like, well, I kind of want to do this for real and show what I can actually do instead of this technical This feels mess. like to say, don't think that that's me doing a biopic. I want to show you me doing 100% yeah. a biopic. And he just directs the fuck out of this movie. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And Taron Egerton is killing it. Good as Alton John. Did he actually sing these songs? Yes. Oh, my God. That was part of why he ended up being hired. Elton John, like I said, was intimately involved with every aspect of this film, although he was not the guy who wrote the script. That was Lee Hall. He was not the guy who did any of the specific jobs. He was there through every step giving advice. And apparently, like, right off the bat, Taron came in. They're like, well, I don't know. And then he started singing, and and Taron wanted this role. And he sounded so much like Elton John and had all the mannerisms down. They were like, yeah, that's the like, guy. Elton apparently also said there was a, there's a famous Photoshop shoot they did on a plane um, like the pictures are out there in real life but the movie has the version of it apparently that was the first thing they did was shoot those pictures and showed them to Elton and he thought they were showing him pictures of him from that original photo shoot <laughs> which is like, like okay uh, okay you're probably right I, I think that I'm in I, I call it film festival mode where you you your emotional reaction right after seeing something is very heightened it's probably hyperbolic to say this is the best movie of the year but this is in my top five at the okay. very least. I mean, I, I really, I mean, I would definitely say not my favorite movie of the year, but someone saying in the top five, well, I go, okay. Uh, and uh, there's a difference. I was having this discussion on Facebook. There's a difference between favorite and best. Yeah. You know, like my favorite movie of this year is probably going to end up being Endgame mm-hmm. because it's it, that's such a huge thing. Or hits all the, or, hits all the Aaron spots. Or, or Rise of the Skywalker coming out in December. Because who knows? Come on, who knows? JJ Abrams is directing it. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Yeah. But um, but like this is definitely one of the top five best movies. Of it's the year. it's and fun. It's a original new take on these yes. things. 
while still not ever doing anything so crazy that it loses the audience of like, what are you doing? Well, just great musical and dance sequences, great performances throughout with all these people, great new versions, sort of like mixture versions of these songs. There were a few songs I felt like that were unfairly left out that I would have liked to have seen that I really like, but overall, I think they really nailed it. They chose not to get overly maudlin, which was really nice. These biopics have a habit of like, <laughs> dragging you through the mud for 20 minutes with being just fucking depressing well, as shit. That's the beauty and, about the, the rock opera aspect of it. Yeah. And, well, that and I, I think there's this note of, unlike watching The Doors, which is just like, oh yeah, this, this killed this person. Because Elton John is alive and he's come through the other end of this, it, it has an air of catharsis. Like, there's this wonderful moment where he has it out with his mom. And it's like, I've fucked half of the population of England, and I've done every drug, and I've drank every drink, and I enjoyed every minute of it. And it, looking back on it that way... Uh, it was a learning opportunity is a lot more enjoyable of a film than, yeah, and, and I drank myself to death and drowned in my vomit. <laughs> this is a film I will definitely return <clears throat> to. Um, it's just a fun watch. Yeah. Um, and it's a really nice presentation here of the film. It looks gorgeous on the 4K and Blu-ray versions here. Uh, the audio fix-up is a Dolby Atmos mix, which, you know, once again, you want a really good mix for a big musical fantasy yeah, film like this. A lot of bonus features. There's fifteen, uh, almost 15 minutes of extended musical numbers with an optional introduction of Dexter Fletcher, including The Bitches Back, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, Breaking Down the Walls of Heartache and Honky Cat. There is uh, a... Uh, just one deleted scenes, I believe, tw- uh, 25 cents, Dexter, Dexter Fletcher. Uh, there's, it's going to be a wild ride, creative visions, seven minutes, which look at a, a lot of the style and what they call Elton's visual history with Elton and Taryn talking together. There's a lot of the extras of Elton and Taryn in sort of you know, a, a room talking I, together about the film. I, I really want Taryn Egerton, to, whether or not this, he actually did turn in the best performance of the year. I want him to win the Academy Award just to like, I I want this to win all the awards that uh, Bohemian Rhapsody won. It's not going to just because of all the flack Bohemian Rhapsody got a lot. I know, but just like... Which is a shame because this deserves those awards much more than that. Yeah, this movie's editing is so on point. Taron Egg, which which I actually really liked Remy Malek's acting in that. Yeah, but Taron Egerton was so phenomenal in this. This is just a great movie. Uh, Becoming Elton, Taryn's transformation for eight minutes. Elton and Taryn talking about that sort of like that process. How did you do this? Had to have been hard. And yes, it was. Larger than life. Production design and costuming. Nine (coughs) minutes looks on the the look. And not just the awesome outfits that Elton John wears, but more than that. Uh, Full tilt. Staging the musical numbers for ten minutes. A lot of behind the scenes uh, looks at uh, sequences. Almost sort of like a gag reel, if you will. Music reimagined. The studio sessions for eleven and a half minutes, which is about how they recorded all these songs with Taryn singing them. Rocketman lyric comparisons. Sing along with select songs. 35 minutes, 44 seconds of karaoke versions of the songs. Like, what is this, a Disney release? Uh, Rocketman jukebox for 52 minutes, which is just the musical sequences. So you can watch the movie where it skips everything but goes right to the musical sequences, which okay. actually is something I could see myself doing. I agree. To be fair. Um, yeah, I, I think this is deeply solid little release. I think a lot of people are going to fall madly in love with this film that sadly may not have given it the chance. I think other people who are going to see it, like you said, who are just going to hate it because this was never for them. Oh, I, I, I looked on Amazon. I always look on Amazon for the movies I love and check out the one-star reviews. Just like I, I always I check out the five-star reviews of movies I hate. Yeah. Half of them were, what? This is a musical? Ugh, right, and you're like, that's not a review. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's it for this week's Digital Noise. Uh, I'll be back in uh, very shortly with John Golson for more titles. Man, we got some crazy shit to talk about me and John's and movies. You're going to be like, what is that? Anyway, thank you, Aaron, for joining me. And uh, please click on those links on our page of the pictures of the titles to go on Amazon to buy these things. Because if you don't, well, then I'll cry. Yeah, go buy Rocket Man. It's worth it.